0: We have two Bible passages today. The first is Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 to 10, and can be found on page 713 in the Blue Church Bibles. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly. And shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will be there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. The second Bible passage is Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 15, and can be found on page... 976 in the Blue Church Bibles. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me." As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear.
1: Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open your words this morning. We pray for uh, your guidance, your wisdom, for your spirit's encouragement, and for your rebuke, if necessary. Father, please help us, guide us, and strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so in the uh, traditional calendar of the church throughout the world... These four Sundays leading up to Christmas are the season of Advent. Latin word uh, that means appearing. I really like Advent. I like Advent more than I like December. I think December is stressful, you know, because you've got so many things that need to be done by, by the time you hit Christmas. Um, but maybe it's the fact that Advent happens at the same time, that it helps to change my focus during a stressful time. Rather than crashing into Christmas and then sort of, you know, picking yourself up from the dust and saying, oh yeah, that's right, Christmas was about Jesus. Uh, Rather than that, Advent actually prepares us, it helps us to get ready for the arrival of the King, to prepare for God's Messiah, to anticipate Him, and even to long for Him. And of course, there are two comings of Christ. There's His first coming, and that's what we obviously celebrate at Christmas and and then the second coming, theoretically, you could celebrate that at any time, couldn't you? We, we don't, it hasn't happened yet, but you know, maybe that's not limited to Christmas, right? I don't know. But the thing is, as you look at the promises in the Bible for God's coming into the world to redeem the world and to restore, it's often hard to see the distinction between what it says that's fulfilled in his first coming and what it says is fulfilled in his second coming that hasn't happened yet. So some of the promises are fulfilled by first, the first coming. And some of them we're anticipating in the second coming. There's been an inauguration, uh, but there is still yet to be a consummation of God's fulfilled promises. So Advent isn't just about preparing for Christmas. It's about preparing for the return of the Messiah to finish what he started. Because the coming of God's Messiah into the world is the hope for the world. Education is not the hope for the world. Equality is not the hope for the world. Environmental preservation, economic prosperity or flourishing, all those things I've mentioned are good things, but they're not the hope for the world. The coming of God's Messiah into the world is the hope for the world. And one of the key figures in the Messiah's first coming into the world is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist had this extraordinary task of being the spotter. Have you ever been a spotter? I was asked to be a spotter once. Um, we used to live in Newtown in Sydney, across the road from Sydney University, and there was a pedestrian crossing right out the front of our, our house, and it was quite a steep hill. And all these students would come down the hill, and they'd be looking off into the, into the sky, not concentrating, and just walk out onto the road, and then would screech grrr, as the cars come. And Nobody died, that's good. But then the car comes in behind and just smashes into the back of that one. And that would happen probably once a month. That was the standard thing that happened out the front of our house. And so one day the tow, tow truck drivers uh, knocked on our door and they said, hey, um, we'd like a little business here. If you spot a car crash, give us a call and we'll give you a cut. <laughs> so we're thinking, okay, here's an opportunity to, to prosper out of someone else's misfortune. Now, we didn't, we didn't think that way. Um, I don't think we ever called them, actually, but we did nevertheless think it was very special to be their spotters. Um, So John is the spotter for Jesus. And uh, in each of the biographies of Jesus, the Gospels, John is there identifying for the crowd who the Messiah is. And there's a beautiful retelling of these moments in John's Gospel, different John, of course, uh, where John the Baptist, he's at the River Jordan, And he sees Jesus coming towards him. And he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look, everyone, that's him. I have seen and I testified that this is God's chosen one, were John's words. Think of a legal process in a courtroom. Let the record show that the witness is pointing at the defendant. The next day, John's there at the river again. And this time he's got two of his own disciples with him. And Jesus passes by again. And John says, look, the, the Lamb of God. And you know what his two disciples do? They walk off and they follow Jesus. One of them, of course, was Andrew, the brother of Peter. And so this is a very significant moment. The baton is effectively passed from John to Jesus here. John's disciple becomes Jesus' disciple. And so we come to Matthew 11, the passage we had read a few minutes ago. And by this time, John is in prison. Because things haven't fared too well for him in worldly terms since the passing of this baton. He's had a few things to say about Herod and the fact that he probably shouldn't be marrying his brother's wife and he gets put into prison. You know, you, he's, he's spoken out and he's been put away. And from his jail cell, he's trying to take stock of where things are up to. He's, he's still got some disciples. They're obviously looking after him and, and keeping him informed, particularly about what's going on For the Messiah. And this may come as a surprise, but it seems like in today's passage, John is having a wobbly. That's the technical theological term. He's having a wobbly. Uh, He's watching Jesus' ministry from a distance and he's having second thoughts. And he sends his disciples to ask Jesus a terrible question Are you the one? who's to come or should we expect someone else crickets you can hear the pin drop and then there's muttering and murmuring you know i just heard john the baptist querying jesus you remember what john said i have seen and i testify look the lamb of god john's on record but john's thinking are you really because it doesn't look like it from my cell This can only be deep discouragement on the part of John the Baptist. His life purpose to be the spotter for the Messiah and for some reason he's having real doubts. Was it all for nothing? Did he get the wrong guy? Did he put his neck on the chopping block for no reason? So it's it's a bit surprising, isn't it? But it's not only surprising, it's also like puzzling, don't you think? I mean, let me reread verses 2 and 3. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to him to ask, Are you the one? So it's when he heard about the deeds of the Messiah. It doesn't say John hadn't heard about the deeds of the Messiah and so he sent messages. No, it's when he heard about the deeds. And that's when he voices his doubts. So maybe we should have a little look then. At what these deeds of Jesus are that, are that are in Matthew's gospel prior to this confrontation. Uh, you know, these sorts of things that John might be reflecting on. Well, there's Jesus preaching and teaching. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. There's healing countless people of countless different illnesses. There's calming the storm. There's raising a dead girl. There's sending out his disciples on a mission throughout Israel. Ah, that's not enough, John. What's going on? Don't these things seem extraordinary to you? Isn't it as obvious as the nose on your face, John? I mean, it's obvious to all of us, isn't it, right? Why isn't it obvious to John? This is is clearly the Messiah, right? I mean, how much more miraculous testimony do you need? But we should pause, uh, because I wonder if seeing John the Baptist discouraged, reminds us of our own discouragements. There are lots of disappointments in life, aren't there? Now don't get me wrong, as Christians, I believe we are much better equipped to deal with the challenges of life than someone without the knowledge of the Creator and what His plans are for humanity. We're already way ahead. But there are times, and I'm sure you all know it, When our faith gets challenged, we have our theological reasoning, our understanding of how things work, and suddenly it can seem flawed to us. And uh, this can really destabilize us, it can make us doubt. Some of you would know that here at Cornerstone College, three years ago, a youth leader was struck by lightning and killed in the middle of a youth camp. I'm good friends with his brother. And uh, his father is a well-known pastor in Adelaide. And this guy who died was an amazing bloke. He was kind and thoughtful and generous and affectionate, a family man, well-loved. He was an amazing guitar player. He actually even played on an album I recorded a few years ago. And he was here doing the Lord's work. He was helping young people to be disciples of Jesus. And it wasn't like a, you know an accident that just, you know, oopsie, you know, it wasn't like he got you know, hit by a car or, or whatever. It wasn't that he was murdered by an evil person. He was struck by lightning. Who brings the lightning? Even the insurance company will tell you it's an act of God. Why would God do that? Uh, to that person, on that camp, it, it raises big questions, doesn't it? Another example of the spiritual discouragement that we can face. I was at the Adelaide Christmas pageant uh, a few weeks ago with the kids, and you know, it's a lot of fun. And, and but then all of a sudden, there's this wave of disappointment that comes over you at people's complete disregard for Jesus at the time. Then we're, cel- we're celebrating the miracle of the incarnation you know God the creator becomes a part of the creation it's like we are amazed and this is fantastic and you know this is this is extraordinary and yet you know there's this little float and I'm I'm sure they've put a lot of work into the float but nobody notices it because they're all waiting for the big guy in the red suit who's at the end of the parade Uh, that's our advent the great arrival Santa's here and he's come to his magic cave Welcome, O oh Santa. Of course, this year the cave had to be moved to the town hall because they couldn't afford to do it at DJs anymore. So the um, you know the uh, the council had to chip in so we don't miss out on Advent. Uh, you know the church seems so totally irrelevant. Don't you see that? And and the only time the church pops up is you know misconduct or outdated ideas. Do do you find yourself being discouraged? And how does your sort of thinking about these things fare? Do you, uh, do you wonder, what is God doing? Is the church growing? Um, should, the church should be growing, shouldn't it? And is the Spirit being successful in His work? Is Jesus the King of Kings, as we've just sung about? Is He the supreme authority over every government in the world? And what do we do when we face these discouragements? Well, so we can put on, we can try to make excuses for God. I think I do that quite commonly, actually. You know and, and in a sense, it's a certain kind of denial, isn't it? Or we can lose heart, we can lose faith. I read about a friend this week who's just you know kind of triumphing in the fact that she's now you know got a different take on things, or we can go back to the scriptures and we can look at them more carefully, because sometimes a partial understanding of things might as well be a misunderstanding. I told you before about my little boy, Charlie, who has Down syndrome. It's an intellectual disability, and uh, he's very much looking forward... Well, it's, it's now upon us, isn't it? The beginning of the school holidays, uh, because for him, holidays means going away on a holiday. In fact, because um, we've often gone to Victor Harbour on a holiday, and I've been going to Victor Harbour a lot in the last year, you know, I'll tell him, I'm going to Victor Harbour today, and he says, are you going on a holiday? So Ali and I, have got, we've got to work out some kind of holiday that we can go on, or else he's going to find this whole school holidays experience quite unsatisfying. Sometimes a partial, misund- sorry, a partial understanding might as well be a misunderstanding. After all, Jesus told Peter to get behind me, Satan, because of a partial understanding of the role of the Messiah and what the Messiah was going to have to face. So back to John the Baptist then, and what does Jesus say? Well, he, he kind of quotes scripture to him. This is Matthew 11, verses 4 to 6. Go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So it's a paraphrase of Isaiah, that that other chapter that we had from Isaiah 35, read, this is what you'll see when the Lord comes. You'll see signs of life, you'll see signs of restoration, of rebirth, of renewal. And if you're steeped in the scriptures, as John definitely would have been, then when Jesus cites a few verses, he's thinking, ah, I know that passage. And it brings to mind the ideas of that passage and the surrounding words. And that passage from Isaiah talks about the desert and the wilderness rejoicing. This is a desert with feelings, expressing its feelings. It's bursting into bloom and shouting for joy when it sees the glory of God. Wow. And crucially, the verses immediately before the ones that Jesus is referring to about the sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, the verses immediately before that say this. This is Isaiah 35, verse 3 and 4. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come. With vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. And I think that's the kind of action that John is expecting. In Matthew 3, so a few chapters earlier than this passage, uh, where Matthew tells the story of John's um, preaching, these are the kinds of messages that John gives in his preaching. He says, repent, you know, stop affirming yourself and change. Turn, back, turn away from your sins and turn back to God. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That is, don't just say it. Change your life so everyone can see. You have changed. Repent. Turn back to God. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And after me comes one more powerful than I. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he's going to clear the threshing floor, gathering wheat into his barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. These are the words of John the Baptist. John's message was when Jesus comes, God's judgment comes with him. Look out because he is going to be more powerful than Herod or Rome. Don't need to worry about being thrown into prison, right? Stop sinning. Get on the right side of righteousness, or you will burn under the judgment of God. And I, it may surprise you, but it shouldn't if, if we've read the Bible a lot. But Jesus wouldn't disagree with this. The point is, it's only half the picture. A partial understanding is often a misunderstanding. See, by quoting Isaiah 35, Jesus effectively says to him, John, I am who you've been saying I was. This is the fulfillment of the prophets. Look what I'm doing. Seeing all, see all these things? So be strong. Do not fear. I have come to save you. But how Jesus would save has not been revealed to John. And how Jesus would bring The judgment of God has not been revealed to John. These things weren't revealed to him, but they have been revealed to us. There's a wonderful paragraph in the Apostle Peter's first letter, uh, in chapter 1 of that letter, 1 Peter 1, where he talks about the fact that all the prophets that came before him, they had limited knowledge of the things that they were prophesying and about this salvation that would come about Peter says it like this concerning our salvation the prophets of old who spoke of the grace that was to come to you present-day Christians they searched intently and with the greatest of care trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. They are so mysterious and so extraordinary. You see, the sufferings of the Messiah that Peter talks about here, they weren't part of John the Baptist's picture of what the Messiah would do. The glories that would follow they were the second part of the picture not the first part of the picture the suffering comes before the glory and these sufferings they weren't part of peter's picture even either and peter even went so far as to tell jesus he was wrong uh, that the messiah must suffer jesus you really Uh, but of course that's the moment where jesus says get behind me satan you're thinking like the world you're not thinking the way God thinks, you're thinking the way everyone else thinks. So, so get behind me, Satan. Wow, what a moment. We present the gospel as good news for the world and it, it is most definitely that. It is the great revelation of God's salvation. But the point is, it's not a salvation that we can work out for ourselves. It's not something that we've come up with. Even the most spiritually minded, well-intended people can't just work this out for themselves. If even the John, John the Baptist couldn't work it out, Peter the Apostle couldn't work it out, then you and I, we can't work this out on ourselves either. On our own either. But Jesus has shown us. It's been revealed to us, this salvation. In the Scriptures, we would never have chosen a suffering saviour you would not have chosen a suffering saviour, would you? That means that he fails, right? In every other purpose, every other field of life, if you suffer and die, that means you're the loser. You just wouldn't have picked this. It was revealed to you. This is the way that God has chosen it. Uh, it's not that John was wrong in what he said in his preaching. We must repent. We must confess our sins. The axe is at the root of the trees. Jesus is more powerful, will come to judge. But here's the crucial point. He will come to judge, but not before taking God's divine judgment on his own shoulders. That is the great wonder and mystery of our message, this gospel, that God himself would bear the weight through his own suffering of our sins against him. In Peter's letter in chapter 2, he would go on to say these words about this, 2.24. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds... You have been healed. The next chapter, Peter would say these words, chapter three, eighteen. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He put to death in the body. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And so what God has done is provided a way back to him for sinners. Turn to Christ in repentance. Have your sins wiped You need not face the coming judgment about which John is preaching. But it will come. Remember the second advent. There's nothing in what John says that Jesus refutes. It's just that John needs the full picture. The Messiah goes the path of suffering, the path of the cross, not the path of glory. He is given the path of glory after he goes the path of suffering. And John also would go that path of suffering shortly afterwards. We, you may remember that morbid scene in Herod's, Herod's dinner party. You and I are on that path, this, the path of suffering. We're not on the path of glory. The way to the path of glory is God taking you there. Glory comes at the second advent. It's interesting uh, to see what Jesus goes on to say about John the Baptist after this. You know, Perhaps there had been the murmurings and the mutterings. He said, you know, who did you go out to see? Did you go out to see like a, a, a leaf blowing in the breeze? Uh, no, don't sit in judgment on John, Jesus is saying to them. Listen to verse 11. He says, Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? From where Jesus sits, the greatest human being in the world thus far was John the Baptist. Why? What did he have that all the great prophets of old didn't have? And, you know, what about the patriarch Abraham or that great prophet and deliverer Moses? I mean, is is John really greater than them? Why? Well, he was the spotter of the Messiah. That moment, look, the Lamb of God, that's the most important job any human being had ever been given to do to that point. That, of course, also helps us to understand the second part of that verse where Jesus talks um, about others, verse 11b, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Okay, so, so he's talking about us, isn't he? We have the full picture about Christ. There are details that haven't been, picked, been filled in, but we have had the balanced picture, the true picture of Christ revealed to us. We see the cross and we see the empty tomb. We've received the gospel, the message about what God has done in Christ and how he's done it. And so even the Christians of the most frail faith are greater than John the Baptist, according to Jesus. Well, why? Because if you if you can if you understand the very basic idea of the gospel, if you can quote something like, "He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross," or "By His wounds I am healed," you, you've got it. That's the that's the truth. You're you're spotting Christ and proclaiming Him for who He is. Time to bring things to a close. There are times of Great grief in life. Times of great questioning of why God lets things happen. Think of the lightning strike. There are times we come face to face with the persistence of human sin and we say, how, "How you know, how? Even amongst Christians. Times we wonder if Jesus is really going to be revealed to the whole world or is it just going to be you know the picture of the pageant until it all passes away? Many, many ways in which we can be discouraged, ways in which doubts can linger. But I think today we learn that everything we need for salvation is in the Bible. That the gospel is not the picture that you and I would have created. But it's been given to us. And it is such a great message, it is such an important message, that if you have it, then you have even greater knowledge than John the Baptist about Christ and about how he saves. We even know that there is a second advent. That's our hope really, isn't it? And we only know that because of the word of God. So when we are down, hard as it is, we go back to the Bible. When we doubt, hard as it is, we go back to the Bible. I know when, when you are facing incredible pain, it is sometimes difficult to open the Scriptures. But we should urge each other to do that. Because our, the truth about our hope is in there. We're not Bible worshippers. Sometimes people say that silly phrase. We are God worshippers. As God worshippers, our strength, our hope, our, our source of meaning is in what God has said, what he has spoken, what he has revealed. And that's what we have in the scriptures. Sometimes it's hard to interpret the times. And the reality is he hasn't given us every detail of what's going to happen and why. We may be thrown by experiences. But I think sometimes, I don't know if you agree with this, but I I think sometimes we apply our own grid over the top of the Bible as we read it. Our own sense of what's fair our own sense of what's logical and reasonable. And I think sometimes God wants us to peel back that grid, go back to the text, try to understand it, work together on it, call on Him and trust in Him because there will be a second advent. Sufferings will be followed by glory. That That is a certainty. So to finish... Please remember that we are all now spotters for Jesus. We herald him to others. We proclaim him. And that's where our meaning and purpose lies. That's what makes us extraordinary as a group of people gathered in a school on a Sunday morning. We are evangelists. We are exhorters and supporters, all the time pointing to Jesus, whether it's, to, whether it's for a person amongst us who's in distress or whether it's an, a friend or family who hasn't come to Christ. We point to Jesus all the time and what he's done and what he's doing and what our hopes are. And we are gladly looking forward to the second advent when the deserts will shout for joy and so will we.